The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Thank you for agreeing to see me in this condition. Oh, I'm not a Klingon. I don't think there's any shame in someone being injured. I am not merely injured, Commander. Dr. Crusher believes my paralysis to be permanent. I'm sorry. I have a personal favor to ask. Name it. I want you to assist me in performing the Hekba ceremony. I want you to help me die. What? When a Klingon can no longer stand and face his enemies as a warrior, when he becomes a burden to his friends and family, it is time for the Hekba. Time for him to die. There must be other options. No, there are not. I will not live as an object of pity or shame. My life as a Klingon is over. Mr. Worf, I will not help a friend commit suicide. Morning, London. It's Thursday, October 1st, 2009. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And yes, you weren't hearing things. That was a new voice for freedom joining us on the show today. Robert Vaughn, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Bob. Not as a guest, but as our co-host and co-anchor. And I'm going to explain what that means to the listeners and stuff like that this morning. And um, so what what we're doing, basically, is we're going to be splitting some of the subjects we bring to the show. For my part, I'm going to be screaming out for an SOS at the end of the show, which is all about stop overspending, going to be a rally in the park on the weekend this weekend we'll be talking about that and of course my first subject for my part of the show is i'll be talking about you robert what did you bring to the show today um, of... <laughs> i've got a pencil I got... yeah <laughs> well that's a good start start writing no i've got a topic here i'd like to talk about it actually has to do with the first clip that you introduced mm-hmm. and uh, it's going to be a really interesting topic i think and um we'll get to that at what when you take over that part of the show you know, um, Robert last appeared as a guest on this show in his particular role as a two-term uh, London Board of Education, Thames Valley Regional Board, was that correct? District Trustee, board, yeah. yeah. And we talked about education, and that was not that long ago, maybe a couple months ago. Um, as time progresses, we will learn more about Robert's background outside most of the areas that uh, the public may be most familiar with him. Now, let's keep this straight. He's Robert. I'm Bob. <laughs> with two people who are just right and two people with the same name, will the show remain centered? Or will it become unbalanced? Only you can tell for sure, <laughs> and only the future will know. You know, we've talked about it for quite a while, and circumstances have now reached the point where we've turned that talk into action, and that is my having Robert here appear with me as co-anchor on the show on a fairly frequent basis, perhaps every week. Let's try it. And with uh, one primary objective in mind, and that is to keep improving the show, to expand our horizons as we take that weekly journey in the right direction. I think Robert's input will give the show an added texture, and uh, I guess if it doesn't work or our listeners don't like it, uh, well, then I'll just have to fire you. That's all there is to it, Robert. <laughs> but I don't expect that to happen, and, uh, you know, I want to explain to our listeners why, so you can keep it down for a couple of minutes here. <laughs> um, we're well into our uh, third year of Just Right Now on CHRW, thanks to the invitation and generosity of the station staff themselves. Well, way back when we were ending my weekly appearances on CHRW here with Jim Chapman and Jeff Schlammer, left, right, and center. That was on Wednesdays back then. And um, I just basically said yes to taking a shot at the vacated Thursday time slot, expecting my tenure to last maybe, oh, a few weeks or, you know, till the end of the year or something while the station reorganized its programming to fill in that slot that Chapman had. 
And well, here I still am. And uh, you know, so don't tell anybody. I don't think maybe maybe they just forgot about me and didn't notice me. Um, you know, this is 100% volunteer radio, and, and I'm thinking maybe my name doesn't show up on the books anywhere. <laughs> so they just left me here. Here I am. You know, Robert, I've always thought, you know, wouldn't this be a good twilight zone? Maybe I'm the only one here who's a volunteer and everybody else is getting paid. <laughs> I got that, no, that I got no so. way of checking, you know. You mean you're not getting paid? Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> but, you know, having been offered the opportunity, I thought I would create a show with a particular purpose, and I thought I'd call that show Just Right. It was a very conscious choice on my part, and there are, you know, multiple dimensions and implications of the term just right that really go far beyond the obvious. To say nothing of its uh, continuity, you know, emerging from the previous show I appeared on, which was called Left, Right, and Center. But with the show's name in mind, I'd like to remind all of us just what is intended and not intended in the choice of that name, just right. You know, I make no claim other than in a strictly philosophical sense that I'm quote, perfectly right about everything or anything, and not even always in that sense. Nor do any of our guests make such claims. I'd like to think of this show more as an exploration about what is right, as in, as incorrect, as that which corresponds to reality and can be determined by reason. We may miss the mark from time to time, and that might happen. Can't think of too many times, but whenever we discover we have, we just take a sharper aim the next time around. And we've got our listeners and critics keeping an eye on us. You know, you can always call in, 519-661-3600 is that number. And that's also why I refer to this show as a journey in the right direction, not the destination itself. It's kind of like, uh, well, kind of like life. You don't want to really get to the end, do you? <laughs> and of course, uh, there's no reason not to keep the show entertaining and sometimes light and fun, but I don't think ever at the expense of our mission statement, um, which we don't really have an official mission statement, but just you know what I, what I was just saying. <laughs> so this has been a very personal project for me and in many ways, and so it might be understandable why there wouldn't be too many people with whom I would share this broadcast vision with. It helps that he's been a fan of the show. Now, I can think of only one or two people who believe that I could even think of as being capable of doing this show, never mind willing, of appearing in this context and whom I would trust in this role. Robert Vaughn is one of those people. And our personal relationship goes back a couple of decades. When did we first meet? How long ago was that? That'll be about 1985. 85? 85, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. A <laughs> couple decades. Do the math. Yep. When it comes to... Uh, I got to tell you, Robert. When it comes to understanding fundamentals, you know, principles of freedom of capitalism, we're, we're certainly on the same page. I think. I think you so. say. And even though we don't always get there by the same journey or the same direction, but um, you know, there aren't too many people I can have a metaphysical and epistemological debate about the nature of existence and of whether we have free will. And I remember one time <laughs> you and I, free will versus determinism. We spent a day. I think we were determined to work out the conclusion. And uh, we came up with a sort of a rather circular conclusion saying that uh, what has been determined is that man shall be free. <laughs> and, um, you know, I I'm actually going to talk about that on a future edition of Just Right, and I think I've got a much better way of expressing it than that circular argument that we came to, which was essentially correct, by the way. But... Um, for the folks out there, just so you know, unlike a guest, uh, as co-anchor, Robert gets to pick his issues, his particular radio excerpts, should he so please. Uh, he can lead his chosen issues, just as I would normally do myself on the show. I think Robert's input will certainly add an extra dimension to the show without compromising the basic uh, qualities and things that most of you have come to expect from the show. Still the same format, still the same kind of thing we'll do every week. And uh, except for the basic theme and, and general subject matter, I have no advanced knowledge of the actual content or argument that Robert will bring him with, you know, bring with him to the show, nor he of mine. And of course, uh, this being live radio, there, we don't get to do any take twos. And um, just so you know, Robert, we're both you know completely at the mercy of our on-air operator and fairly new ar arrival here to CHRW, directly from Australia, and that's Bronwyn Loden. Hi, Bronwyn. Can you say hi to the folks on the air? Are you able to even get on the mic there? Yes, I can. Hi. How are you all doing? <laughs> There's Bronwyn. She's up from... Uh, boy, are you in for a surprise. You know, she comes from um, a part of Australia where uh, Brisbane, I believe. Am I correct? Yep. Yep, yep Brisbane. Uh, it's never gone below freezing there. So she's in for, you know, some seasonal surprises coming here in London, Ontario pretty soon. And also, you know, she's a spoken word director here at the station and... Uh, part of my conspiracy theory. She gets paid. 
Uh-oh. You know, so <laughs> see where I'm going with this? <laughs> Do I have to say any more? So in other words, she's the boss. She can fire both of us. <laughs> now you know. Um, uh, one last thing before we get started. Uh, not that the folks at home need to know this, but there are video cameras in the studios right now recording our every move. And uh, we've done this once or twice on the show before, and both of those shows ended up on YouTube where amazingly thousands of people ended up watching them. And so we hope to be putting segments or parts, or we're not sure how that's going to exactly shape up, but uh, you'll be able to see just right on uh, YouTube in the very near future. And so that's basically I've, I've got all, all I've got to say about our new host. So, Robert, shall we get started? I've just got a couple things I wanted to wrap up from a few previous shows and sure. maybe get your take on them. Um, a couple of weeks ago, September 17th, um, of course, I did a show. Mark Emery has gone to jail now. He went in on Monday, uh, September 28th, 1 p.m. our time. We're apparently sitting for a 30-day uh, mandatory um, that appeal period against extradition, which he has already said he's not going to appeal because he's made a deal. So he's not contesting anything. But, you know, I don't have much to add to this, and we will in the future, and we've covered a lot in the past. But I think a lot of people aren't appreciating what is really at issue here, and I thought I'd use an analogy. Tell me if this rings right with you. And I, I look at it this way. Suppose an American woman came up to Canada, and she had an abortion here at a London hospital. The state she lives in prohibits abortion with criminal charges. As a result, the United States comes north to Canada and extradites the doctors and the hospital staff involved in the woman's illegal abortion here. And uh, basically, we send the doctors down to the United States to suffer a punishment in another state where that law is such different from ours. Um, Now that, in a nutshell, is the way I see the whole issue behind Mark Emery's extradition. Um, Would you agree with that? I think it's an excellent analogy, and I'll give you one more. Let's say somebody shoots somebody in Toronto with a handgun that they bought down in Kentucky. Do we go and extradite the gun owner or a gun store uh, person who sold that handgun to the... uh uh, you know, here. what scares me, I'll bet you there's a lot of people who would say yes, you know. Right. A- and and I think that for the the Harper government to routinely sign this kind of extradition, I think the Canadian, I, and, I've, and I've addressed this before, I think the, the Canadian government is setting a really extraordinary precedent in terms of giving up its sovereignty on even the most insignificant issues when it comes to, uh, you know, where Canadians might differ from Americans. I, I don't know if, if you go along with that or not, but... That's where I sit on that particular issue. Um, one other thing, uh, of course, uh, Michael Moore's capitalism love story. I uh, talked about that last week. Um, took, took my first shot before the movie was even out, but apparently there's an advanced screening tonight. You'll be hearing more about this starting tomorrow because tomorrow the show opens up across North America. And I have a feeling you and I are going to be talking about this in the future, Robert, about uh, Michael Moore and all his fun stuff that he does. Um, one last comment, and this was a thing, uh, I just wanted to finish uh, a subject I really hadn't wrapped up, and I think it was last week's show. Paul Burton at the London Free Press, I got some very interesting reactions to my criticism of his uh, journalism style, shall we say. Um, everyone who talked to me, though, agreed with me, but I got a very interesting question, and it ran across the lines of, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, Don't journalists like Burton know that their arguments are contradictory, nonsensical, or non-sequitur, or ad hominem, if it's so clear to other objective readers? And I kept getting this question, and I thought about it for a while. And um, here's basically how I would think the Burtons of the journalistic world would defend their work as being accurate. I would think they would say that their editorial accurately uh, reflects how they feel about an issue. Exactly. A- and and whether their feelings are in any way connected to reality is is of secondary or no importance to them. They don't you know, that's not what they're writing about. They're writing about their feelings. Their opinion. And and I think that that's sort of the questions I was getting from people made me focus on that and it struck me, you know, that's essentially the mindset of the left in terms of how we define it on the show. You, you don't just see it in journalism, but you see it in leftist uh, advocacy everywhere basically. And uh, I'm reminded of Bruce Cox, the executive director of Greenpeace Canada, who says, you know, it's not about the facts when he was refuting the lack of science behind anti-idling bylaws. He said, it's about what kind of culture we need to create to, to fight climate change. So the facts don't matter. And, of course, the culture he's looking for is uh, state control over the individual. And I think uh, 
Well, that's uh, that's what the whole thing's all about, anyway. So those are my wrap-ups on those few subjects. What do you got coming for coming up for us after the break here? Robert? Well, we're going to be talking about a very positive and uplifting topic: oh. assisted suicide. Oh, geez, I thought that was a dead issue. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, Robert insists. <laughs> he insists on bringing it up, but anyways. We'll all find out what he's talking about on the other side of this quick break for a smile, and I guess after which we'll get very, very, very deadly serious. Hey, Sam, listen to this bulletin. Yeah? An American destroyer accidentally hit and sank a Russian fishing vessel 75 miles off the coast of Labrador. Fifteen Russian fishermen were injured. Yeah, that's a good item. I think we can do something with that. How many Russians did you say were injured? Fifteen. Fifteen. Joe, that could be serious. We better make it ten Russians. How about five Russians? Make it a couple. A couple of hours. A couple of hours? Why not? In that case, then we might as well make it five. Make it ten. Look, we might as well then leave it at the original number, 15. That way, it's original. Nobody will be bugged by it. Fifteen American fishermen injured. Boy, that's terrible. Where, uh, where was this Russian boat, anyway? 75 miles off the coast of Labrador. Labrador. Well, nobody knows where that is. Make it New England. 75 miles off the coast of Massachusetts. Good, now round it out to 50 miles, because I think that'll read better. Maybe even 25. Let's not quibble. Put them a mile off of Boston Harbor. A mile. One mile. Well, those are fool Russians and don't know they're playing with dynamite, do they? What? Just a minute. Wouldn't people see a Russian boat one mile offshore? Sure, somebody would spot it. Not if it was a submarine. <laughs> of course, it had to be a sub. But tell me, how could a, an American destroyer ram a sub? It couldn't. Huh. You know what? What? It's got to be the other way around. Their sub hit our fishing boat. Our fishing boat? Of course. How else could 15 American fishermen be injured? Lousy Ruskies! <laughs> How come the sub didn't see them? I mean, don't forget, a sub has a periscope. That's right. An accident like that just couldn't happen. Of course it could. You mean it wasn't an accident? Of course. <laughs> they did it on purpose. Butchers! Butchers. Read it back to me. All right. Today, a Russian submarine deliberately ran and sank a helpless American fishing boat one mile off Boston Harbor. Fifteen American fishermen are in critical condition. You know something? Those Russians must be out of their minds to think they can get away with a thing like this. You're right. Another incident like this and those maniacs could start World War III. New nurses to have more experience, but you graduated top of your class. Also, we're desperate. Oh, I won't disappoint. Good. Here's a little job for you, Mr. Weintraub. He's dead. Turn off all the machines. But he's still alive. Look, look, his heart is beating. No, he's gone. Turn off all the machines. Call the morgue to get him. Then we'll finish your start paperwork. Hey, we're gonna go get a drink. Do you wanna come? Oh, I'd love to, but um, first I just have to kill Mr. Weintraub. Oh, for God's sake. <gasps> Time of death, 1807. Wanna get that drink now? Welcome back. A lot of you might recognize that from a new show called Mercy, which I have high hopes for. I haven't seen it, I'm afraid. But You haven't seen it? No. I'll give you a copy. Sure. <laughs> Don't say that on the air. Copyright. <laughs> um, my topic today is going to be assisted suicide. Now, other shows and newspapers have touched on the recent introduction of a bill called C-384, an act to amend the criminal code or right to die with dignity. But what I want to do in the next few minutes is to take us through the bill 
clause by clause and discuss the arguments against and those for the bill. Not just my opinion, but you'll probably get that too. The best place to start with any uh, subject is defining your terms. What is euthanasia? What is assisted suicide? And later, what does it mean when we say we have a right to our life? Euthanasia, and I just discovered this actually just a couple of days ago. That's what you'll find when you start working on this show. Yeah, you, you do know. a bit of research, you actually find out some facts <laughs> instead of opinions. Right. Instead of making it up like how many Russians. Uh. <laughs> Euthanasia is from the Greek, meaning good death. So mm. you means good and thanatos means death. Today, we take this to mean dying without pain or dying with dignity. Uh, we often use the term when we uh, say we're putting down an animal, we euthanize them. But unlike animal euthanasia, human euthanasia can be broken down into two areas. Voluntary consensual euthanasia and involuntary or non-consensual euthanasia. We need to clarify that right from the start that Bill C-384 refers only to consensual euthanasia. Regardless of whether it is consensual or not, there's three types or means to euthanize somebody, passive, non-active, or active. Now, passive euthanasia is practiced every day by many ill people. It's simply not treating an illness and allowing that illness to take its natural course. For example, a cancer patient who refuses chemotherapy. A non-active euthanasia is withdrawing treatment or life support, like pulling the plug, in other words. Now, active euthanasia is actually the use of some substance or another to kill a person. An example would be a, a Dr. Jack Kevorkian-style machine, which would inject drugs into the body to terminate the life of the patient, or increasing the dosage of morphine to the point of death. In any of these methods, if any of these methods are performed by the ill person himself, it will be called suicide. But if the patient is incapable of pulling the plug or increasing their morphine dosage themselves, and they're they actually require help, then we are into the area of assisted suicide. As it stands now, the Criminal Code of Canada outlaws assisted suicide. And I'll quote you from Section 14 of the Criminal Code. It's called Consent to Death. Quote, no person is entitled to consent to have death inflicted on him, and such consent does not affect the criminal responsibility of any person by whom death may be inflicted on the person by whom consent is given, unquote. C can I... Mm -hmm. It actually says you cannot consent to your you own cannot, death. You cannot consent to your own death, and it does not. And if you do consent, it doesn't absolve the person who helped you die. It begs the opposite question, doesn't it? Can you consent to your own life? <laughs> it's, it's a choice you have to make every day. That's interesting. You know? yeah, I, I sort of get into that yeah. later on. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in other words, even if you consent, it's not considered legal, and anyone who assists in your suicide may be held responsible for culpable homicide. You hate to be you know, dead illegally. Uh, <laughs> they'll come and get me. Yeah. yeah what's the penalty? Yeah. <laughs> Section 241 of the Criminal Code is titled Suicide and reads, quote, everyone who is A, or everyone who A, counsels a person to commit suicide, or B, aids or abets a person to commit suicide, whether suicide ensues or not, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term not exceeding 14 years, unquote. This is where Bill C-384 comes in. It's been introduced by Bloc Québécois MP Francine Lalonde and has reached second reading in the House of Commons. The bill would amend the code to allow doctors to assist suicide and not be held criminally responsible. However, nine conditions must be met first, and all nine have to be satisfied. Now, the first four conditions relate to the person who's requesting assistance to commit suicide, the patient. They must be of 18 years of age, <clears throat> in other words, an adult. Two, the person either A, continues after trying or express, expressly refusing the appropriate treatments available to experience severe physical or mental pain without any prospect of relief, or B, suffers from a mental illness, or I'm sorry, not mental yeah. illness, <laughs> terminal illness. Terminal, yeah. terminal illness. In fact, that, right. that's an issue that comes up when people want to consent, whether they're capable of doing Whether that. they're lucid, right. and actually there's a condition there which covers that. Mm -hmm. um, three, the person has provided a medical practitioner while appearing to be lucid, there's the, there's the topic there, with two written requests more than 10 days apart expressly stating that person's free and informed consent to opt to die. And four, the fourth condition on the patient is that the person has designated in writing with free and informed consent before two witnesses with no personal interest in the death of the person another person to act on his or her behalf with any medical practitioner 
when the person does not appear to be lucid. In other words, you can set it up in advance in case your mental faculties mm -hmm. go later on. Now, the next five Which, surprisingly, mm -hmm. from some of the stuff I'm looking at here, a lot of people do. Yes. Yeah, they take that precaution. Yeah. So nobody can argue, well, you're only saying that now because you're in pain. Right. Yeah. The next five conditions refer to the medical practitioner. Medical practitioner, by the way, means a person duly qualified by provincial law to practice medicine. The first one is the medical practitioner has requested and received written confirmation of the diagnosis from another medical practitioner with no personal interest in the death of the person. The second one, the medical practitioner has no reasonable grounds to believe that the written requests were made under duress or while the person was not lucid. So we're talking about a sane person here requesting this. And three, the medical practitioner has informed the person of the consequences of his or her requests and of the alternatives available to him or her. Four, the medical practitioner acts in the manner indicated by the person, it being understood that the person may at any time revoke the request made. And five, the medical practitioner provides the coroner with a copy of the confirmation of the diagnosis. Now, on the face of it, I personally think that this is a very reasonable bill. But there are a number of people who object and object vehemently with it. Well, you know... Let's talk about that after the break, because this is a perfect point to break, because uh, we've got a couple of clips from uh, Voyager, uh, which uh, it's amazing how many Star Treks dealt with this issue. And, and, um, <laughs> That's for sure. And dealt with it in, in very explicit ways that, that, are, that are just amazing. So we're going to take a break for a couple of interesting clips and some commercials. When we come back, we'll continue with this. Uh, I'm Bob Metz, and I'm with Robert Vaughn, our co-host today on Just Right, CHRW 94.9 FM. My people have come to think of death as just another stage of our existence. There are some people who are even eager to die. If they feel depressed or lonely in this life, they simply move on to the next one. Is that why you're here? Because you're not happy with your life? Ever since the uh, accident, Life hasn't been easy, but I have to say this is more my family's idea than it is mine. Your family. I'm a burden to them right now. It takes a lot of their time and resources to care for me, and I can't give much back to them. So there was a family meeting, and it was agreed that I should move on to the next emanation. You look appalled. It's not my place to judge your culture. But from my perspective, it's a little chilling to hear that. Even though the family did it out of love, and everyone was happy for me, and they said they'd see me when they got to the next emanation, I have to admit, there is a little voice inside of me that is terrified of dying. And since I've been talking to you, that little voice has started to get louder. some way to reconcile all the conflicting emotions I felt during this hearing. My own aversion to suicide. My compassion for your situation, Q. It hasn't been easy. I've tried to tell myself that this is not about suicide, but about granting asylum. That I am not personally being asked to perform euthanasia. And as technically true as that may be, the moral implications of my choices. I've also had to consider that a decision to grant asylum and the subsequent suicide of a Q might have a significant impact on the continuum. That such a decision could change the nature of an entire society, whether it be a favorable or unfavorable change, disturbs me greatly. But then there are the rights of the individual in this matter. I don't believe that you are mentally unbalanced. 
And I do believe that you are suffering intolerably. Under these conditions, I find it impossible to support immortality forced on an individual by the state. Welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Robert Vaughn, and I'm joined with Robert Metz, and we're talking about assisted suicide. And just before the break, I was talking about that there's a number of people who... Not that I'm assisting you in any way. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was assisting you. A number of people who object vehemently to assisted suicide or the new bill that's before uh, the House of Commons, Mm -hmm. Bill C-384. A few of these groups are Coalition Against Assisted Suicide, an aptly named group. Um, Euthanasia Prevention Coalition and Council of Canadians with Disabilities. Let's deal with some of the major arguments against the bill one at a time. First one, terminally ill people who kill themselves risk missing future cures. I guess if it was, if I was to be too flippant about it, I could say that they are arguing that a patient who is in so much pain and distress that they want to die they should hang around and endure how many more uh, days well, who's or making months? That? I, I can't honestly say I've heard that. That particular. one, I think, is from the Coalition Against Assisted Suicide. That's, that's a real stretch. You'd think I, I wouldn't have made that my first argument. Could <laughs> <laughs> it get better? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so they should hang around for God knows how long, months or years of pain and torment, on the off chance that someone somewhere just might come up with a cure, not to mention the fact that most cures these days must pass several years of government regulatory testing before being used on people. Uh, but then again, a, a less flippant response, to be, to be fair. Uh, the Bill 384 does mention that the person's consent has to be free and informed, and an informed would have to include the knowledge of any present or pending cure. So that information is there. Another uh, argument against the bill would... Um, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm surprised that they even cover that, and that's a reasonable way to cover that. You know, yeah. if there is a pending uh, known uh, invention or possible cure, then that that could muddy the waters a bit, couldn't it? It all has to do with being informed and informed consent, and I think that that should be part of it. Uh, it's, it's a reasonable bill, in my, mm-hmm. my estimation. But Alan Ho of the Coalition Against Suicide goes on and says that life is given by God. And no one has the right to terminate other people's lives. This, I think, is an underlying philosophy behind many of the arguments against assisted suicide, religious beliefs. It offends God. According to this argument, we don't have a right to our life. It belongs to God. Now, Alan Ho was entitled to his opinion. uh, But the thing I think that a lot of people would say is that that's your God. It's not necessarily mine. My body may not belong to your God. (laughs) Uh, you know, belongs to me. So we pass laws, luckily, not based on what are God's commandments, but what involves individual rights. We don't steal not because it's part of the Ten Commandments. We don't steal because it violates the right to property. It's funny, I I happen to have two letters to the editor that contrast the very idea you just talked about. One of them says, suicide can be rational, and that's written by a person, uh, Jamie Harris, here of London, who says, uh, you know, according to many prevention advocates, suicide is the ultimate expression of treatable depression. But he argues that the hypocrisy of concerned suicide prevention efforts translates itself finally into involuntary confinement and the semi-voluntary acceptance of sometimes egregious um, therapeutic modalities, I like how he's putting that, by any who dare to exhibit, you know, sincere suicidal intent. And he argues that, you know, basically that, um, oh, and he says, um, although it may be con- construed as the ultimate act of selfishness, it should also remain the ultimate right within an individual's domain over self. Whereas on the other hand, we have Maria Avery here in an article uh, making the religious argument, and, and it's headed up, the value of suffering. And, uh, you know, and she argues that the, you know, the idea that just a peaceful, healthy, wealthy life is the only life that's worth to be kept, which isn't what anybody's arguing, but she says is a selfish idea that has the origin in man's mind and not in God's mind. And she says the value of suffering in God's sight is what we should be, you know, doing more of. And I think that speaks to a lot of the weakness of the whole religious approach. I think so, too, yeah. yeah. But that's actually, the first one was actually quite, uh, quite a good argument. Yes. Yeah. Another one is that all kinds of pain can be relieved by painkillers and other medical treatments, which of course is not entirely true. In many cases, patients get used to painkillers, and the dosage has to increase um, to the point where they're almost the point killing them. Where they're al- yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the point where it kills the pain is where it's going to kill the patient. Yes. 
So that's not a that's not an argument. Um, the bill is restricted. Here's here's another argument. The bill is restricted to Canadian citizens and could make Canada a destination for suicide tourists and suicide clinics. I'm sorry, I have to be flipping about this one as well. Yeah. My my response to that is so what? As long as they don't want us to pay for it. I say that that's a great idea. It would demonstrate to the world that Canada is a free country that respects people's right to their life and that we understand that this Aren't also means that they can terminate their own life on their own terms. And isn't that an issue already? Aren't people already going to other countries um, for, you know, to, to have assisted suicides in Europe particularly? Well, in Europe, actually, there, there's a number of states in Europe that, that allow physician-assisted suicide, do. yeah. As a matter of fact, I think there's actually a state in the United States, see, there's Oregon. Another, there's another example of what could happen if you have extradition treaties between countries who have different laws and their citizens go to another law to do something that's illegal in their own country. And, and can those countries come after us like they're doing with Mark Emery and that kind of thing, you know? I, I see that happening in an issue like this Well, I think easily. the penalty against assisted suicide should be death. <laughs> <laughs> for the patient. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, we're not okay. talking about that. But anyway, so just a few final comments on the topic, I guess. The bill recognizes our right to our life. And I think that this is one of the few instances of legislation I can think of in this country that dares to delve into the often quoted but little understood right that every one of us has, and that is our right to our life. Uh, what many people often don't realize is that a right to something also means a right not to have that thing. For example, the right to free speech also In fact, means that... I think that's the key. That's yeah. the, if you can't say no, it doesn't. <laughs> where's the yeah, right? Where's the right? Yeah, that's you, why I don't believe we have a right to health care and education, because you can't say no to the system that they force <laughs> you to be in. Exactly. Uh, your right to free speech, free speech means that we have the right to keep quiet, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, freedom of association means that we also have the freedom not to associate. Freedom of expression. We don't have to express ourselves. Likewise, our right to our life means that we also have a right to die, and to die with dignity. Nathaniel Brandon, I think you're familiar with mm -hmm. him, Ayn Rand's one-time intellectual heir, wrote... Not anymore. No, not anymore. <laughs> it's Leonard Peikoff. Yeah. No, yeah. It is in the name of the life proper to man that a rational person may be willing to die, not as a treason to his life, but as the only act of loyalty possible to him. A life of constant pain, that was Nathaniel Brandon, a life of constant pain can often be no life at all. And sometimes all that's left for us to, to do is to bow out with dignity. And I think Bill C-384 is long overdue in this country and should be supported. What do you think, Bob? Uh, I, I, I agree. I've always, you know, but, you know, I, I also share, I think everybody feeling-wise may feel two ways about it. It's great to talk about... Um, the right to life, but when you're involving other people in an assisted suicide, the issues of trust become incredibly paramount. And of course, everybody's concerned about, you know, the rich um, philanthropist getting old, somebody wants to get his, his, his fortune early, he can get some crooked doctors to sign this and that, and all of a sudden the guy signed his papers for euthanasia and he didn't know anything about it. That, those this stories, bill, yeah, this you, you bill know covers I mean? all of those objections. They're talking about informed consent, witnesses who have absolutely nothing to do with the death of the doctor or death of the patient, a, well, you know, a doctor, every, doctor involved. I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here a bit, but you know, every yeah. system generally starts off okay, and then when it gets running for years and years, lethargy and various, uh, you know, they're just not as careful as before. It's interesting, Barbara Kay, who was on uh, from the National Post, she was on the show just two weeks ago, and on another subject, but she had this article about euthanasia um, in the Post, what's the date on here, September 23rd, and basically it's it's a memo to my children, she says, and to, to get to the point, she's going, my dear family, I do not want to be bumped off. I can't state the case more unequivocally than that. I don't care if I'm a burden to you. You were once for me. That's how life works. I don't care how long it takes for me to die. I don't care how in inconvenient it is to the medical system. I don't care how selfless an example other parents are setting and graciously exiting the world for the, their dependent's sake before nature intended, which is exactly the scenario that was given in that Star Trek clip just before. Yeah. And um, you had some interesting observations about Star Trek in that regard. Oh, there, didn't you? Um, yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, uh, when I was researching some cl audio clips like that Worf and uh, Riker one mm -hmm. at the beginning, um, I came across a site, you know, memoryalpha.org. A lot of Trekkies out there might recognize that. But apparently, there are so many instances of suicide, attempted suicide, assisted suicide, failed suicides, <laughs> euthanasia <laughs> in Star Trek. You wonder whether or not that it's a running theme with the show. For example, 
Leonard McCoy pulled the plug on his father. Remember that in the movie, oh, The Final Frontier. About that. Yeah. Huge guilt guilt things over that too, I guess. Uh, what is it? Commander Data destroyed um, uh, the scimitar. It was in the Star Trek Nemesis. He actually committed suicide. Data dies. Well, actually, he died for what he believed to be a, a higher value, of course. But it was a suicide. Um, Spock died by committing suicide, you know, in the movie uh, The Wrath of Khan. Remember that well, of one? Of course, yeah. Now, mind you, he came back because he gave his katra or whatever big that was mistake, to... Big mistake, big <laughs> mistake. Not that I didn't want Spock back. They, what, they, in a show where you've got time travel, do you have to bring people back to life? <laughs> <laughs> now, here's another one. Deanna Troy yeah. nearly killed herself under telepathic influence after experiencing disturbing hallucinations. Since she was actually being so bothered by these hallucinations, she wanted to die. Oh, yeah, that's a... Uh, you know, I can think of one with um, who was on MASH there, um, Ogden Steers, David Ogden Steers. Remember, uh, he was supposed to die and have a scheduled death according to his society, and he was a, a guest on uh, one yes. the Enterprise once, and that was a big issue. And of course, the other clips we heard, um, Death Wish. How much more obvious can you get about a title of a show with that one, <laughs> where we heard. Um, no, see, there was an interesting show because there you had uh, the two cues one arguing a case for death. And here's a, here's a, not a person, a being that's quote, end quote, immortal, cannot die. And, and by every other reasonable, you know, it's, it's a very unreal situation to begin with because any being like that wouldn't even have a need for morality, a need for ethics or anything like that's that. That's absolutely nothing true. could harm them. Yeah, absolutely and, true. And all morality is based on, uh, you know, the good versus the harmful, really. And that's what we mean largely when we say good and evil. Let's take a break now. We're going to come back on the other side of this, and we're going to send out an SOS message talking about the Stop Overspending rally that's going to be happening in downtown London this weekend. Uh, I'd, I'd rather die fast than slow, though. I remember when I was in high school, we took this uh, one study which covered the uh, well-known Elizabeth Kubler-Ross study of uh, terminally ill patients. And uh, she found out if you know ahead of time that you're going to die, if you suffer from some impending doom. You go through these five distinct stages, right? The first one, of course, is denial. Then there's anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, right? Those are the five stages you go through if you know you're going to die. But uh, I was thinking about it the other day. Aren't these the exact same five stages you go through when you locked your keys in your car? <laughs> all right, first of all, it's denial. No, I didn't. <laughs> and anger. Oh, son of a <laughs> And bargaining, please let the other side be open. <laughs> and depression, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> and finally, acceptance, well, it's a rental. Minister Humphrey. Got this economizing nonsense under control? Yes, I think so, Jumbo, more or less. <laughs> what do you mean, more or less? Well, yes and no. Mm. Presumably it's like all the other government economy drives. Hmm? Three mm. days of press releases, three weeks of ministerial memos, and a crisis in the Middle East and back to normal again. Well, this one's <laughs> I'm afraid he's beginning to see slimming down the service as his main task. Damn it, we don't need slimming. <laughs> I think you might have to conduct another Operation Hair Shirt. Operation Hair Shirt? What a good idea. Guide him towards painful personal economies. Yes. <laughs> no. Economy begins at home, Minister. Set an example, Minister. Can't expect others to do what we can't do ourselves, Minister. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Just what he needs. Self-denial? Splendid. <laughs> right. Item three, the economy drive. Now, Frank here has come up with some really startling indications of wastage in our very midst. Has he really? And I think you're going to be pretty surprised at what I've uncovered. I must say, Humphrey, these facts are a frightening indictment of bureaucratic sloppiness and self-indulgence. 
Dear, dear. <laughs> Apparently, there are 90 civil servants in Sunderland exactly duplicating the work of 90 more here in Whitehall. Ah, uh, yes, that stems from a cabinet decision. Job creation in the Northeast. Well, let's get rid of them. <laughs> yes, that would get rid of 90 civil servants at a stroke. Yes, or indeed at a strike. <laughs> <laughs> well, personally, I would be wholeheartedly in favour of such a move, Minister. It would be a splendid economy and show great political courage to sack staff in depressed marginal constituencies. <laughs> I just don't believe that there is nowhere we can cut down. I see waste everywhere. Well, I agree with you, Minister. There is certainly scope for economy. Well, where? Isn't that the question that everyone keeps asking themselves? Just where can you actually cut back in tax, or in spending, actually? And that's what's different about the rally uh, that's going to be held October 3rd, 2009, from 12 noon to 2 p.m. at Reg Cooper Square, here in the City of London. Tell City Council that it's time to stop overspending, SOS, and the, uh, the event is being organized by the Forest City Institute under the auspices of Andrew Lawton who has uh, been talking, there's going to be music, speakers, and basically a rally against the higher taxes and to tell the government to stop overspending. And I thought with that event coming up in mind, and I may well find myself there, there's going to be some guests there. Some, uh, one of them was a guest on this show, Kathy Shadle, I understand, is going to be one of the speakers. And, um, but nevertheless, you know, the question remains, you can always talk about taxes, eh, Robert, constantly. Um, and nobody really wants to cut on the spending. Taxes aren't the issue. Taxes are symptoms. Spending is the issue, and I think that it's an aptly named uh, protest. Stop uh, the spending. And, that, and it's different just for that point alone. Um, you know, I, I've been getting in, into the media a lot lately this week, and they heard them talking about me on another radio st station this morning, in fact, because I've raised a little bit of a stink. Um, not the stink everybody else is raising about the... Um, you know, LHSC hospital scandal, which is part of spending. City puts its money in there, as, as well as other elements uh, or other levels of government, as do also private individuals. And I, I see the whole issue being discussed in this moral and intellectual vacuum. Um, everybody's talking about, you know, we have this entitlement culture, and then they get mad at the top bureaucrats. And nobody ever thinks about the entitlement that every man, woman, and child out in the street has with regards to their health care. And I don't think uh, a lot of them like it when I bring that up, you know, because we all expect not health care insurance, not protection from the worst things that might happen to us. Health we want free health care, free from, you know, bottom dollar to top. Is there such a beast in the whole creation there is no such thing and i try to remind people that that just does not exist and that as long as we keep doing this and keep having a government-run health care system i've called it corrupt from top to bottom i don't mean that in the sense of the people in it are all evil the system itself can't cannot function it's based on all the wrong principles and and there's just no way of getting around that you know and uh, I could have dug up a million um, Yes Minister clips on this one, by the way, and I've already played one in the past, Robert. I don't know if you recall the one where um, Humphrey is telling the minister um, it's not the overspending and the waste that bothers people in the healthcare system, it's finding out about it. <laughs> and that was done back in the 1980s. And I, I, could, I just am constantly amazed at the incredible wisdom in that one tiny little British TV series. I know you're a fan of it, Yes, too. Minister is absolutely brilliant. It is a, a, a amazing writing on that show. Amazing. And, and and it's not necessarily... It's not because it... It certainly doesn't support the view I'm doing on this show every week. That's not even what it's about, really. It just has this very, very realistic view. Uh, I think a very grounded, down-to-earth view of how government works, what's real, what's not real in government, um, and does so in a very comic way. But it, it's, it's not funny in, in another sort of way. It's tragic. Um, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and then again, there's the whole um, um, epistemological vacuum that people talking talk issues like this in. They use the wrong words for the wrong wrong concepts. P people still believe there's such a thing as public property. We own the hospitals. and well, If we do, I'd like to sell my shares. If there's any buyers out there, <laughs> I want them to call the show right now. Um, it's just amazing. You know, I hear uh, Mike Bradley, mayor of Sarnia, talking about the public wants to know where its money is being spent. And it's not my money anymore. It's gone, you know. And uh, 
So, and then, of course, we need more laws to solve this problem. We have to have transparency laws and another level of bureaucracy. And uh, really, at the bottom, all you want to do is uh, privatize the whole system. I mean, that's all you can really do. That's just one of the ways we spend our money. Um, municipally, uh, what you know, what, where where would you say, Robert, that, that governments on a municipal level have a legitimate responsibility for in terms of their spending? A legitimate response yeah. or a le legitimate yeah. uh, purpose to municipal government? Yeah. Well, I don't think... In terms that, of spending. In terms of spending, yeah. Infrastructure uh, needs, I think, are... Um, most people would consider that's quite legitimate. What they don't consider legitimate are things like the white elephants of um, sports arenas, um, convention centers, uh, things of that nature. Um, there, how, how come we always end up with them? We, you know, in <laughs> every council members you vote in. Not you personally, Bob. No, I, uh, that's for sure, not me. Um, but in any case, you know, it's always funny with all those quote-unquote quote, quote unquote, white elephants, when they were being built, uh, you could always find certain, uh, like 70-80% of the general taxpaying public to be against that in terms of taxpayer dollars going towards those projects. Because, of course, everyone knows that the priorities are running out. Big problem municipally is as more of our tax dollars are being spent in what one might call transfer of funds from Group A to Group B, basically robbing Peter to pay Paul, welfare things. The basic services for which the city is actually responsible are just uh, getting worse and worse, more expensive. Taxes go up, services go down. Pretty soon they'll be telling us we can only put out half a bag of garbage a week or something. <laughs> or maybe not around. Take, you know, flush it down the toilet yourself or something. I don't know, but we're not getting any money's worth out of our taxes, that's for sure. So any last thoughts, Robert, before we go? you have fun? I had fun, Bob. I think I'm oh. going to enjoy this. Um, I think that was makes me think. Yeah, it does. And not only that, this is one way I'm not going to miss your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I better invite the whole city on there. We've got room here. We've got one, two, three, four, five chairs there. And, um, well, it's interesting, too. I don't know how this is going to look online when we go uh, on YouTube with some of this stuff. Let's see how that ends up looking. But um, uh, welcome to the show, Robert. going to be here next week. Do we know what we're talking about? I've got a few ideas I'll well, bounce do. off you later on, but, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to come next week. Well, see, that's why I need someone like Robert, because I haven't even given next week's sh show a single thought yet in terms of topic. <laughs> All I know is 11 o'clock comes around here next week. I'm going to be here. Robert's going to be here. Hopefully, you folks will be here, too. And I guess that's our cue to get out of here. Thanks for your help, Robert. It's been fun. It's been it fun, again. Thank, Thank you, Bronwyn. We're out of here. Uh, you, you know what? Take care of yourself and all that stuff. See you next week. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the bed clothes, everything will be alright. My dad, a hard drinking man from the 70s. We actually have no pictures of my father where he's not holding a beer. Weddings, funerals, parent teacher conference. <laughs> Personally, I stopped drinking when I was 17 years old. Because it's not good for your health, and I fell into a bonfire. You're done drinking then. You don't need AA. Falling into a bonfire is a one-step program.